Dan put me in quite a pickle last week because he said Andy gets to teach the tail end of this section, this very difficult section that's hard to understand and wrap a neat bow on it and finish it up. And so uh, afterwards, some of y'all said, man, no pressure or good luck. And I I want y'all to know that helped me a whole lot, Uh, helped me prepare for this. But uh, so I'm going to start with a disclaimer, (laughs) Not, not that it won't be clear, Because the passage today is very clear. Uh, The problem is that you're smart and that you have, you know some things and you have seen enough sin in the world and in your own life that is going to make this simple truth hard to stick in your brain and in your heart. Uh, I'm just going to give away the ending, the main idea of this whole section and this last part of this section is that children of God do not sin. And so my disclaimer is that I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to reconcile the tension between the reality that you live and experience and this truth of God. Rather, I'm going to try, God willing, to explain the text and exalt Christ, and I'm going to pray for a suspense of disbelief. And if any of you are in filmmaking or uh, book writing or storytelling, you know that suspense of disbelief is Well, I'm just going to read this definition because I think it's helpful. For people that tell stories, they want their, especially for sci-fi, suspense of disbelief is to allow oneself to believe that something is true even though it seems impossible. And I remember when I saw a a little clip of the first King Kong movie where it wasn't even colored, it was black and white, and this really bad claymation. And back then, the first people that saw it thought, wow, this is awesome. And they had this suspense of disbelief and thought, wow, this looks really good. But then we got smart, and our eyes and our taste got more sophisticated, and we realized that's not quite real. And the same thing happens in our faith. And I'm reading through the Gospels right now. And over and over again, Jesus is esteeming the faith of children. Who they hear this mind-blowing truth of who God is and who Jesus is, and they accept it. And we all started out that way. And then we grow up, and we experience some life, and we get smart, and we see a lot of sin, and we sin a lot. And it makes it harder to just, (laughs) like, Keith said that we would respond in faith. So, I want to start by reading a passage, not our main passage, that, and it's in Luke chapter 5, verse 4. And we've used it up here in this way because it's such a good truth and such a good example of how to respond in faith. So I want you to imagine that you're Simon Peter. Imagine that you're a professional fisherman 
and you are very educated, very skilled, and very experienced about how to get fish. And you know when a hole is all fished out and there's nothing more to get there, okay? So look in Luke chapter five, verse four. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus said to Simon, put out into deep, the deep, and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. So I better pray, Lord Jesus, will you please suspend our disbelief that we would believe the impossible right now if you say it. That we would take you at your word. Will you let us not be too smart and too observant of our past or our present to just believe the clear teaching of your word? Will you make our hearts good, soft soil to receive this deep, into our souls, and we'll need your help, Jesus. Amen. All right, so 1 John chapter 2. And the section that we're wrapping up started in verse 28 and ends in chapter 3, verse 10. And he started the book talking about this thing that they have received from the beginning. There is this anointing, this truth, this person, this good news named Jesus who they believed and they received. And then he goes on to exhort them to cling to this truth and let it abide in them. And so it says in chapter 2, verse 28, now little children abide in him, in the truth and in him Cling to him and cling to this truth of what really has happened inside of you. And then he goes on to describe those who don't abide in this truth, they practice lawlessness and those who do practice righteousness. And that brings us to verse seven. So I wanna back up a little bit from where Dan was last week to finish out seven, eight, nine, and 10. Verse seven. Chapter 3, 1 John. Little children, let no one deceive you. So they're believing some lies. And specifically, John, among other things, was dealing with Gnosticism. There was this idea that knowledge was supreme over the physical, and there was this dualism, this idea that as long as you knew the right things and were tapped into the deeper knowledge and you were spiritually saved, it didn't matter a whole lot what you did physically with your body. If you were engaged in immorality, that was okay because you were spiritually saved. And so John is saying, let no one deceive you. Because in his mind, to have Christ and to sin are incompatible. He says, let no one deceive you. Here's the truth. 
Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And that verb for practices, it's poieo, and it literally means to do or to make. Whoever does or makes righteousness is righteous. And it is a present tense verb. And the reason I want to share that, it'll come, it's, It'll help later also, but just know that the present tense in Greek is not precisely the way it is for us in English that it's primarily about time. It's not primarily about time. And take a look at, okay, that is a really fancy high dollar graphics that we purchased. I'm just going to sketch it out this morning. Okay, so the uh, top one there is a picture of a present tense verb. It's the idea of an action that is not completed. It's an ongoing action. That's present tense. And that's what's used here for whoever practices, whoever does or makes righteousness. It's an ongoing action. Okay? So whoever does righteousness, it's something that flows from his nature or his character. Another way of saying it is it's just what he does. What does a righteous person do? He does righteousness. Whoever practices righteousness, he does it because he is righteous. Not because he lucked out or won the fight that time. It's he does righteousness because it flows out of who he is. Righteous. Now, uh, why is he righteous? Well, look, it says, as he is righteous, meaning Christ. So the idea is, if you have Jesus inside of you, the righteous one, he doesn't just hang out. He transforms you to be the righteousness of God. And so you do righteousness. Jesus is a lot like the leaven that he speaks of to describe the kingdom. A little leaven in the lump doesn't just chill in that little spot. It takes over. And Jesus, the righteous one, does the same thing in our hearts. Now, the opposite is also true. The opposite of the person who practices righteousness is righteous. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice, again, that's poieo, present tense, who is doing sin. And in the Greek, it's a noun. Sin is a noun, not the verb of sinning, but just the noun sin. Whoever is doing sin, whoever does sin, is of the devil. So you've got two options. In John's mind, it's very simple. You either are of Jesus and have Jesus inside of you and you're producing righteousness or you have the devil inside of you and you are of the devil and you are producing lawlessness. Sin. Why? For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So the devil shares his nature with those whom he is in. He, from his nature, sins. And 
Those who are of him share that nature. Same with Jesus. From the beginning, he has been righteous. And those he is in share in his righteousness and they do righteousness. But there are many who are of the devil. But God is not okay with that. He did something. He sent someone. It says, the reason the Son of God appeared, or rather was revealed by the Father, the reason Christ was sent was to destroy the works of the devil. So all those children of the devil, Jesus came to set them free and to destroy the works of him in their hearts. The bondage, the enslavement in the hearts of the children of the devil, Jesus came to destroy that and set them free. So now they can be his. That's why he came. That's why he appeared, to destroy the works of the devil. And what he comes to do, he succeeds in. And you may say, yeah, but I'm still going to sin, right? Well, this is where John doubles down. And here, he is leaning into the ideal. He's not really trying to be super practical or make it fit in your brain right now. He's leaning into the ideal. John is under no delusion that Christians just don't ever commit sin, period. It's why earlier he says, uh, if we say we have no sin, then we're, we're lying. And he says, if you do sin, you have an advocate. But what's he doing? He's leaning into the ideal. This is the big truth that we have to reckon with. Not necessarily make fit in our brain or make fit with our present experience, but this is the big truth that we need to submit to and believe and respond to in faith. So instead of backing off here, he just doubles down and look at, look at verse nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And here again, the practice, that's that same present verb that means doing. And again, it's the noun sin. He's saying no one born of God does sin. And I know this might be tricky, but I want to ask you to write in your Bible. I want you to write above the word no one. I want you to write the word whoever. Because actually the no in the Greek, doesn't come until right before the verb. And the reason I think that's important is because if you see that verse nine starts with whoever, it's gonna help you connect it with the other whoever's in this verse. So it actually more literally says something like, whoever is born of God, and then right above makes a practice of sinning, write the words, does not do sin. That's a little bit more literal what he's saying. Whoever 
is born of God does not do sin. It's just not what they do. And that word for whoever there, or where it says no one, it's actually more literally all or every or each. It means it's an all-inclusive word. It's saying if you are born of God, this applies to you all, period. And the word born, some of your translations might say has been born. And the reason why is because that word born is a perfect verb. Not present, it's perfect. So what that means, that's the second one here. A present tense verb is an an action that's ongoing. It's not completed. A perfect verb is something that was completed in the past but there is an ongoing state in the present. It's like that box right there. That's the state that you live in and exist in right now as a direct result of that completed action in the past, that completed action that is unshakably anchored in the past that has a very real difference on your present experience. And what's that thing that's unshakably anchored in the past? Being born again. If that has happened for you, there's something different about you right now. There is a very real state that you live in right now. And what is it? And this is the crazy statement that he makes. If that's you, if you have been born of God, meaning you have a new father now, which comes with a new nature, new appetites, new desires. Here's just a statement of fact. You do not sin. How can he make such a bold claim? For, that means that could be translated because this is a cause and effect relationship Whatever he says next is the cause that creates the effect of you just do not sin. That's not what you do. What's the cause? God's seed abides in him. God's seed abides. That means lives in and stays in you. God's seed. So, what does God's seed mean? The Greek word is sperma. You can guess what English word we get from that. And it means that we are fathered by God. Or it's like saying we have his blood in our veins and we take with it all of the character and nature and dispositions of our father. That's what stays in us. 
His seed abides in us. And not only that, not only do we have his self and nature and disposition, but also seed carries with it this idea of potential growth of a source of future godness in us. His seed is in us. And it means one more thing. (laughs) The seed that lives within us. Look at Galatians chapter 3 up here. Now the promises were made to Abraham, talking about the Genesis 12 promises that's going to result in the blessing of all families. And it ends by saying, and to your offspring, that's the same word, sperma, who is Christ. Who's the seed that abides in you and stays in you? It's Jesus Christ. This is the cause that results in you don't sin. The point is, if you believe in Jesus, you have been fathered by him, his seed, Christ himself lives inside of you and Jesus doesn't mean to coexist with anything. He means to take over. The seed of God overrides, overpowers and destroys the old seed, the old nature, the seed of the devil. It is overwhelmed by the seed of God. Christ himself. I'm going to try an illustration that might be a little strange. My son was showing me something from a, a nature show the other day. And there's this particular species of caterpillar that at a certain point it'll drop to the jungle floor below that's crawling with ants and it seems like suicide. And probably so to the ants as well. And they, they swarm and pick up this little caterpillar larva and they take it into the colony. And instead of eating it, this larva puts off first the scent and then the sounds to mimic the, the offspring of the queen. So they take it into the colony And they feed and take care of, they usher it to the spot of royalty (laughs) and take care of it to the neglect of the other offspring. And this thing grows to maturation and uh, blossoms and destroys the, the, I don't know, I I missed the last part. But the idea, (laughs) the idea, it comes in and takes over, it hijacks the whole system, retools the whole system. And this is what Jesus does for you and I. This is what the seed of God, it comes inside and blows up the whole system and makes us new until we are completely transformed. And uh, if, 
(laughs) As if this truth couldn't get any better that we do not sin, it does get better. Look at the next phrase. I'll start at the beginning of the verse for context. Verse nine, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Again, this is the perfect tense verb for has been born of God. And again, this is the cause of why we cannot go on sinning. The cause is you have unshakably in the past been born of God and this does change your present and your future. And here, it's not just that you don't sin, it's that you couldn't if you wanted to. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, I'm gonna explain a little bit more of the Greek behind cannot keep on sinning. Because again, sinning is not a verb in the Greek, it's the Oh, sorry, it is the verb in the Greek, but it's an infinitive to sin. And the word for cannot, keep on, it's actually this verb. It's one of my favorite verbs, uh, one of my favorite words in Greek. It's dunatos, or here it's dunatai. The noun form is where I first met this word. And I met it in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the dunitas of God. It is the power of God for salvation. And dunitas, we get our English word dynamite from this same root word. So the power, the gospel is this explosive power of God to blow up decades of sediment of sin and lies that enslave us to set us free. That's what the gospel does. It has power and strength and ability to set us free. That word dunatos in its verb form is right here. Which means what this is literally saying is if you have been born of God, you don't have any power or strength or ability or capacity to sin. It says, has the power, and then they add the word not. So it's literally, you, it's kind of like Scotty, you don't have the power. You cannot sin even if you wanted to. So I could summarize this verse by saying, look, if you are born of God, and I know that's an if, I don't know if you are born of God. If you are born of God, you can say, the reason I can't sin is because I have been born of God in the past. And the reason I don't sin 
is because God's seed abides in me in the present. The idea is that Christ presently abiding doesn't leave room for sin presently abiding. So the only question is, am I born of God or am I not? Who is my father? Now, who doesn't love a good 90s talk show paternity test? I mean, when they, back when they wanted to get some ratings, man, they, they all did it. Mari, Jerry, Sally, Ricky, Montel, they all. You want to spike the ratings, you get a kid there where has some resemblance of two different people, and you do the DNA tests, and there's lots of drama that goes with that. And they do the DNA test to remove all doubt of who the baby daddy is. So now, John is going to triple down on this fact that sin is not an option. And he tells us what the DNA test is. Verse 10. By this, it is evident. The verb there is the same one as the reason the Son of God appeared. The reason the Son of God was revealed and made evident. And here it says, by this, it is revealed and made clear and evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? So I'm a twin, and I always say Joey's the evil one, and I'm, but you know, I have to confess, I don't know, I could be Joey up here, right, Mom? Because uh, for, for, for the first, I don't know, week or so, we had the bracelet on. And, you, and that's assuming the bracelets stayed right from the beginning. But then after the bracelets came off, all bets are off. We don't know. I, I could be Joey. I could have I been Andy, switched to Joey, and then back again five times. I don't know. <laughs> but here, where there is a question of who your father is, this is how you remove all doubt. For John, it's so black and white. It's so clear. There's no wondering. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And again, that practice is that present verb poieo, which is making or doing righteousness. And that word whoever is the same word Pas ha that was used up in verse nine. And I think he's doing that on purpose to bookend these two statements. Whoever is born of God does not do sin and whoever does not do righteousness is not of God. He makes it very clear. You wanna know who your dad is The DNA test is, 
Are you doing sin or are you doing righteousness? And then he throws on this little phrase that almost blew up my mind. And he just says, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And I'm like, hang on. I'm just barely hanging on to what you've said so far. And then you launch into this love his brother. So I'm going to let Dan do that next week because it inter- it's a hinge to the whole next section about love. And it's, it's as if he's just saying, let me just throw you a bone here. One practical example of what this might look like, of what doing righteousness might look like is loving your brother. And what not doing righteousness might look like is you don't love your brother. And he's going to unpack that moving forward. But let me try to summarize like this. Take a look. In verse 9a, it says, whoever is born of God does not do sin. And in 10b that we just looked at, whoever is not of God does not do righteousness. And so the opposites of those statements are implied, though not stated, which are these. Whoever is born of the devil does sin. Do you see how that's the opposite of the first one? And then the opposite of the second one is whoever is of God does righteousness. So let me take all four of those and go and squish it together. And it says, children of God do righteousness. Children of the devil do sin. Why? Because being born of God means something. The seed of God actually makes a fundamental, profound, supernatural change to who you really are. If you have been born of God, you have been remade. He's retooled the whole system. It reminds me of World War II that I've heard, not that I've read about and heard that (laughs) automakers built guns, trucks, tanks, and aircraft engines. Do y'all know about this? That this was a time when everybody pulled together for the war effort. And these uh, car maker, these car factories, they retooled their whole assembly line to crank out stuff to help with the war effort. And Ford Motor Company started producing B-24 Liberator bombers. Furniture upholstery nail producers started producing cartridge clips for Springfield rifles. And even Hershey got in on the deal. And instead of continuing to contribute to the American pandemic of obesity and heart disease, they do something like this and totally redeem themselves. They start making the, what's it called? Somebody, some of y'all know this, the D-ration bar. That is something that is a, a more tasty than car, cardboard nutrient bar that they would crank out and send out. The idea is that they took 
their normal operating procedures and retooled the whole assembly line to produce something different. And when the new seed comes to live inside of you, he takes over and he retools everything. And we're no longer factories of lawlessness and sin. We are now factories that produce righteousness. And even, okay, even as I say this, it's even better than that. It's more like he took our old factory that is cranking out sin 24-7 and demolished the whole factory and then set off a nuclear bomb at the foundation to destroy the whole thing and, and obliterate every, every remnant of it and then rebuild from scratch something new and beautiful and more glorious. You and I have been remade, recreated factories of righteousness as he is righteous. It's just clear, but it's not easy to fit because you know you sin. So what do we do with this? Well, first of all, if you are not of God, it's not too late to come to Jesus. And if you missed that, it's not too late right now. And I can say that every five seconds until he returns and it'll never be too late to surrender to Jesus. So don't, don't overanalyze. Is the faith that I have now a real faith? Because sometimes I sin, I don't know. And look back and just wallow in that. Just repent and just come to Jesus. If there's any doubt... Just tell him, Jesus, I'm yours. I surrender. I bow to you. You're my king. You take over. I receive you implanted and invite you and welcome you and beg that you would take over. Just repent. Just receive him. And you receive a new father and a new nature that instant. If you know that you are a child of God, here's the truth. The life of God, the seed of God, the son of God living inside of me and doing sin are simply incompatible. I, as a child of God, do not, of my nature, sin. And if, and if I'll believe it, I cannot sin. And I'm going to resist the temptation to water this down, to make it fit. I don't want to overplay the ongoing nature. 
that says, what he means is if you sin all the time, then you're, I don't want to do that. I just want to let it say what it says. If, if he's in me, I do righteousness and I don't sin. And I can't sin if I will believe that. I can't sin. And whenever a passage like this is really hard to grapple with or to get a takeaway from it, one good thing to do is look for the imperatives, the verbs that are commanding you to do something. And in this whole section, from 228 to 310, there's three imperative verbs. The first one is way up in chapter 2, verse 28. <clears throat> Excuse me. Chapter 2, verse 28. It says, And now little children abide in him. Cling to the truth, cling to him, and stay there. Do you see what he's saying? He's essentially saying, believe. And now look, in chapter 3, verse 1, this is another imperative verb, see. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. He's, imploring, he's commanding us, just see this. Believe this. Do you see? It's again, believe this huge, glorious truth. And then the other imperative is in verse 7, where he's, and it's a negative one. He says, let no one deceive you. He's saying, don't believe the lies. So again, it's an encouragement to believe the truth. So what's our application here? Believe. One more bit of good news for us to chew on. If this is true, then for me to do righteousness means I'm not trying to manufacture something counter to my nature. See what I mean? I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a balloon factory trying to make hammers. I'm a, I'm a, he's made me a, a righteousness factory. And he said, you do righteousness. And so if I try to manufacture sin... I'm producing counter to my nature. Which means I'm going to fatigue. <laughs> and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to wear out trying to produce sin. This is good news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. Suspend our disbelief. It seems too good to be true or too big to be true. 
But what if it's just really, really good and really, really true? We believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. When it comes to a choice between looking at our track record of even just this past week and making predictions based off of that on one hand or looking at what your word says on the other, that we do not sin. Man, Lord, we're going with you. All the data, all my experience says there's no fish in that water. But at your word, we are going to submit. Lord, will you continue to produce righteousness in us? We praise you that the seed the one that is in us is greater than he who is in the world and greater than the old man who we were. Thank you, Jesus, for overcoming. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.